honestly have no idea if this show is still on, but does anyone remember the TV series Survivor? It's still on, okay. I have no idea what season they must be in. Some, yeah, <laughs> something. Well, if you're not familiar with the story Survivor, it started when I was in middle school, high school, and they invited 30 contestants out to some you know, island in the tropics where they competed to be the last person standing, the sole survivor, and the winner walked away with 100000 and then a million dollars. And, and it is a wonderful contest designed to bring out the absolute worst in human nature because you have to build strong alliances for the first half of the contest so you can make it through, and then you have to betray all of your alliances by the very end so that you're the last person standing. Um, but it was very popular, and I watched it back in high school. When I was in high school, they did a Survivor All-Stars season where they invited some of the favorite contestants. And there was two individuals, one named Rob, a guy, and one named Amber, this girl, who had competed previously. And on this particular season, they got together and made an alliance. They made a promise to one another really quick. The, fa um, the fact that they were young and beautiful and had some significant chemistry helped the audiences um, to, to appreciate them. But throughout the competition, they kept reaffirming this promise to one another, we're going to go all the way to the end as far as we can together. And time and time again, that promise is challenged, but they stayed faithful to one another until you got to the final three. And by the time we had reached this far in the competition, um, they are officially a couple. They're a thing. And the last competition of survivors between the final three people, and it's a how bad do you want it competition. Last person there gets immunity and gets to choose who they will, you know, who they will face off in the final um, vote to win a million dollars. And the third other guy, he got out first. So it's just Rob and it's just Amber. And the winner of this competition gets to pick who they're going to compete against. You think it would be simple for one of them just to get out because they trust one another. But there's a million dollars on the line. And uh, despite the chemistry and despite how many times they've reiterated this promise, neither one of them are willing to back down and put a million dollars in the hands of the other person. And so they compete to the end until one of them wins. And much to my relief, you know, they stayed faithful and true to one another. And uh, they voted the other guy off. And at the grand finale and the awarding of the prize, you know, Rob gets down on a knee and proposes to Amber. And they're a couple with four kids and, and life moved on for them. So it worked out well. But it highlighted the fact that there are times in our life where we question and challenge the people that we would normally trust because there's a lot on the line. And not only do we face this with people, whether it's the surgeon that we trust up until the point that they're going to operate on my eyes or on my ankle or on my kid's heart or our spouse or our boss or maybe God. There we say, we'll, we'll trust you as long as life for me is fine, as long as nothing is at risk. But the more at risk there is, the harder it becomes to actually trust someone. And whether that's in, in obeying God, when God says, this is the way to live, 
and we say, ah, God, I, I know you say that, but what really sounds good to me would be to do something different. What would really make me happy, successful, give me joy, peace, and security in my life. Um, maybe I'll, I'll go that way. <clears throat> For instance, when you're young and poor, trusting money is not really an option to you. It's, you have to trust God. And then all of a sudden, you get a real job and you start earning income. And all of a sudden, that temptation to say, maybe I don't need to trust God as much as I can just trust my bank account comes up. By God's grace, those opportunities are few and far between, but still, they're there. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. But this morning, we're going to be looking at a man who is on a journey of trust. His name is Abram. It's later changed to Abraham. We're going from chapter 11 in Genesis all the way through to chapter 19. Um, and I encourage you to read it. These stories are amazing and poignant. They're well-crafted, and they teach profound lessons. But we're not going to dive into the details of most of them. Let me show you. There's there's a pattern here. There's a reason it's a segment. There's three kind of groups of stories. In the first group, God blesses a guy named Abram. And during this section, Abram, uh, God, through Abram's intervention, rescues Abram's nephew Lot um, from the destruction that's coming on Sodom and Gomorrah. That's in the first section of stories. And in the last section of stories, we see that pattern repeated. God blesses Abram, whose name has now been changed to Abraham. And once again, God, through Abraham, rescues Lot from the destruction that's coming on Sodom and Gomorrah. So there's a pattern here. And then in the middle section, there's a pattern. God makes a covenant with Abraham in chapters 15 and in chapter 17. And right in the middle of all of this, is a story about an Egyptian slave girl named Hagar and the child that she gives birth to named Ishmael. So there's a reason there's a section, and I invite you to go home and read it and see what you can pick up. But I'm going to do my best to summarize this and keep your attention. Uh, but on Abraham's journey of trust, something to be paying attention to is, is watching how he learns to wait on the blessings of God. God's going to make some promises. And by the time we hit the end of our passage this morning, none of God's promises to Abraham will have yet come true. But he learns. He learns some significant lessons. So we're going to skip the genealogy of, of Terah and his family. This is the account of Terah. He had three sons. So just as Adam and Eve, they had three sons, Cain and Abel and uh, Seth. And one of the sons dies. And just as Noah has three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and Ham is kind of taken out of the picture, so to speak, in a bad way, Terah has three sons, Abram and Nahor and Haran, and Haran dies. Well, Terah dies at the end of chapter 11, and we pick up with this son named Abram. And the Lord said to Abram, go, go from your country, leave your home, and from your people, and from your father's household. Leave everything that you know and go to the land that I will show you. God gives him no destination. He just says, wander and I will show you a land. And I will make you into a great nation. And I will bless you. And I will make your name great. And you will be a blessing and I will bless those who bless you. And whoever curses you, I will curse. Whoever despises you, I will curse. And all the people of the earth will be blessed through you. 
This is an incredible promise that is the linchpin between the first 11 chapters of Genesis and the rest of the Torah, the rest of the first five, really the Hebrew scriptures. See, um, what what this blessing shows us is that God's solution to the problems of the world are going to come through the family line of Abraham. And this is really important because in that little bit of scripture that I, I skipped, we find out that Abram and Sarai, they have no children. Sarai is barren. She's unable to conceive. And God just says, I'm going to make a mighty nation of your descendants. So God's promise and reality don't quite seem to be in alignment right now. And there's this patterning here where Abram is described in words similar to Noah. He's like a a new Adam. He's a new Noah, someone through whom God is going to do a new work. Because for both of them, it says, and God said to, go out from, and they went out. And they built an altar, and God blessed them and said, be fruitful, or I'm going to make you a great nation. You're going to be fruitful. Sorry, it cut off there. Um, God makes a covenant with Noah and with his offspring, his seed. God makes a covenant with Abram and with his offspring, his seed. But after God blesses Abram and tells him to go, Abraham went. And as the Lord had told him, and his nephew, Lot, goes with him. Abram was 75 years old when he set out from Haran. He'll be 99 by the time we hit the end of the passage. And he took his wife Sarai, his nephew Lot, all the possessions that they had accumulated and the people that they had acquired in Haran, and they set out for the land of Canaan, and they arrived there. And Abram traveled throughout the land as far as the site of the great tree of Morah at Shechem. At the time the Canaanites were in the land, and the Lord appeared to Abram. And he says, to your offspring, I will give this land. And so he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. And from there, he traveled on to the hills east of Bethel. Bethel means house of God. And he pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and I on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and he called on the name of the Lord. And Abram set out and continued towards the Negev, the southern part of of what is the land of Judah. So in this little story, there's a lot of Eden imagery activated. God brings someone to a special land that he has prepared for him. And there are trees, and there's an altar and a tent, and the appearance of God to a person. And Abram is walking about in this land on this worship tour. He's like a new Adam. He's like a new Noah. And God has made this amazing promise to this man and his wife, who currently have no kids, that they will have lots of kids, a whole nation, a lot of offspring. They will be given a land. God will make for Abram a great name. Think the Tower of Babel when people wanted to make a name for themselves. Here, God has said, I'm going to make someone a great name. And through Abram, through his family, a blessing will come to the whole world. Again, God's solution to the world's problems come through the family line of Abram. So things are going great until they go disastrously wrong. The next two stories are Abram messing with God's promise. So Abram goes down to Egypt, and the wife through whom the offspring is supposed to come is given away to the king of Egypt. Apparently, Sarah, in her old age, is so pretty that Abram thinks, I'm going to be killed, and they're going to steal my wife. So he says, He says, lie and say you're my sister. And so Sarai is taken by Pharaoh until God intervenes 
And God sends a bunch of plagues on Egypt. There's a pattern here. When we get to Exodus, we should pay attention to. And Abram and Sarai are sent out from Egypt with a whole lot of treasure. And they go back into the land. And God has rescued the promise from someone who's going to screw it up. And then the next story, Abram screws it up again. And he tries to give the land away to his nephew Lot. He says, Lot, we're too rich to live close by. We need to separate from one another so that our servants aren't fighting all the time. Pick where you want to go. You can pick any part of the land and that'll be your place and I'll go somewhere else. And fortunately from Abram, Lot looks down at the lush Jordan Valley, which is like the Garden of Eden, and he, he picks there. And so as we've seen in this pattern, you have a guy who goes eastward toward the city of Sodom, which is a very wicked city. Um, so Lot is kind of like Cain and his descendants, or kind of like Ham and his descendants. They travel eastward towards a wicked city. Bad things are going to come. But God shows up to Abram and says, Abram, look around you. All of this land I will give to your descendants. Throughout these stories, God keeps reiterating this promise over and over again. I will keep my word to you. I will keep my word to you. You will have children. You will have lots of children. But it doesn't happen yet. And so after God reiterates his promise to Abram, Abram goes to live near the great trees of Mamre at Hebron where he pitches his tent. And there again, he builds an altar to the Lord. This is a, another picture of, of Eden, and when we get to chapter 18, Abram will still be in the same spot. So this is a significant place in the story. <clears throat> All right, in chapter 14, there's this awesome, cool little story. Abraham has come out of Babylon into the promised land. He's left his country, but now Babylon comes after him. The king of Shinar, where Babylon is, and a bunch of other kings invade the promised land capture the people there and take them off into exile, including the kings, uh, the people of Sodom and Gomorrah, including Lot. At this point, Abraham's nephew is living in the city of Sodom. And Abram, while all of this chaos is taking place in the land, he's chilling under a tree in his little Eden spot with some Gentiles who are in good relation with him. And when he gets word that his nephew has been taken, he gathers the servants of his household, 318 of them, and they go off north and they thrash those kings and bring everybody home. And there's this cool little story with a guy named Melchizedek. And you see Abram, who was willing to get rich uh, when he gave his wife away from the king of Egypt. Now he's refusing to get rich from the king of Sodom. He's going to trust God. We get to chapter 15. So we've entered, exited the first section now we get to chapter 15, this middle section, covenant, Hagar, covenant. And the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, says, do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. Here God shows up and says, Abram, I'm, I'm, the, I'm the real good here. I'm going to defend you. I'm going to take care of you. I am your great reward. God's saying something significant, and Abram doesn't quite get it. Because he responds, oh, sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless? And the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus. It's so, it's so crucial. He repeats it. And Abram said again, you have given me no children. So a servant in my household will be my heir. God, I know you just said you were going to be the reward. But look, if I don't have a kid, it all doesn't mean too much to me. 
And so God makes a promise. The word of the Lord came to him. Oh, this man will not be your heir. But a son who is your own flesh and blood will be your heir. I will keep my promise to you. And God took Abram outside and he says, look up at the sky and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. And he said to him, and whenever there's a little extra detail in the text, pay attention because there's a pause there. God doesn't just keep talking. It's like he invites Abram out of his tent and he says, look up at the nighttime sky and count the stars. And he just paused and Abram's like, one, two, three, 476, 477. I give up. And he said to him, so shall your descendants be. And Abram, this man who has no kids, whose wife is barren, is promised more descendants than the stars in the sky. And when God says his promise, Abraham trusts him. He believes it. He believes the Lord and, he, and the Lord credited it to Abraham as righteousness. God says, if you just trust me, if you hear my words and you say, okay, I'm going to believe that what you say is true, that to me is righteousness. It's not keeping a bunch of rules. It's not doing a bunch of good things. It's just believing that God is telling you the truth. And God says, that is righteousness to me. And so God enters a covenant with Abram. What follows in chapter 15 is here we have the question of the offspring. And next is the question of the land. How will I know that I will inherit this land um, and so God, through images reminiscent of Mount Sinai, enters into a covenant with Abram. So Abram is this righteous one who's in a covenant with God that God has promised children to. And then Abraham blows it. See, in chapter 16, it's been years. We find out by the end of the chapter, it's been a decade. Abraham has been in the land. God's made these, a prom these promises and nothing has happened. And so Sarai gets this idea that maybe God needs a little help keeping his word. So Sarai's like, I can't have kids, but, you know, looking around at the local fertility treatment options of the time, she has this great idea, what about a surrogate? So she says, Abram, how about you marry my Egyptian slave, Hagar, and she can have a child for me. And so in this disastrous power play, um, these people, you know, abuse their Egyptian slave girl and she gets pregnant by Abram. And when Hagar sees that she conceives, she despises Sarai. And all of a sudden we have a, a real problem. See, Abram, Sarai, they're God's chosen people. They are the ones through whom God's blessings to the nations are going to come. God's already said it. And here they are mistreating someone from one of the nations. And now Hagar, who has been mistreated, is despising Sarai. And that word despise is the same word from chapter 12. When God says, I will curse those who curse you, it's I, I will curse those who despise you. What a bind Hagar is in. She's been mistreated and now she's in danger of being cursed by God and it's not really her fault. And Sarai mistreats Hagar so badly Again, with language that echoes Genesis 3 and the sin of the man and the woman in the garden. We're, we're meant to take this as a bad thing. And, and Hagar runs away. And she gets lost in the wilderness on the way to Egypt. And she's chilling out by a well when the angel of the Lord appears to her and says, Hagar, 
Where are you coming from? Where are you going? And Hagar says, well, I'm, I'm running away from Mistress Sarai. I know where I'm coming from. But she has no idea where she's going. And the angel says something almost offensive to her. He says, go back and submit to Sarai. Go, go back to this abusive place? Yeah. But the angel makes a promise. He says, I will bless you. And I will make your offspring into a great nation. And you're going to give birth to a son, and you're going to name him Ishmael. His name means God hears because the Lord has heard your affliction. God has seen you. God pays attention to you. You are not all alone. Go back. And Hagar, the only person in the Hebrew Bible that I'm aware of, gives God a name of his own. She says, you are the God who sees me. Because God heard Hagar, she felt seen. And so the name of that place became Be'er Lahai Roy, the well of the living one who sees me. And she goes back and gives birth to Ishmael, and Abram is 86 years old. We follow that with another covenant story. Abraham is now 99, 13 years later. God appears to him and enters into a covenant with him. And uh, as you tra- walk through it, God says, as for me, I'm going to do this. I'm going to make your name from Abram to Abraham. So I'm just going to call him Abraham. I've been struggling to get those right uh, this morning. Sorry about that. And God says, I'm going to bless you. And God, again, just reiterates his promise. As for you, Abram, we're going to cut a covenant. And this time, instead of animals, uh, we're going to cut you. In the local geography uh, that you just abused your Egyptian slave with. We're going to cut you real close, you and all the males in your descendant. You're going to get circumcised. And as for uh, Sarai, her name is going to be Sarah, and she's going to have a son. And this is so spectacular. Abram, he falls on his face, and he just kind of laughs. He's like, really? Sarai? After all this time? God, I have this better plan. How about Ishmael? Like, would you just bless my son Ishmael, who's 13 at this point, handsome kid. Like, we we can bring God's blessing through Ishmael. And God says, eh, no. No, your, your plan to accomplish my blessing isn't working for me. Sarai, Sarah will have a son. But as for Ishmael, I've heard you, I'll bless him too. And so Hagar, who was sent back into this really not good environment, is, is blessed. Her son is blessed because of, through Abraham, through God's covenant with him. Um, and, and the best explanation that I've come is why do you have a covenant and then a sin story and then this other covenant Uh, One scholar, he pointed out that the covenant of circumcision is God's act of both judgment and blessing on Abraham for the way that he treated his Egyptian servant. And and that makes sense to me if it's right. So I want to share that with you. But then we get to chapter 18. So first section, again, God blesses Abraham and Lot is rescued from the destruction on Sodom and Gomorrah. Covenant, sin, covenant. Last section, God's going to bless Abraham. Abraham. And uh, Lot is going to be rescued from the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. Now the Lord appeared to Abraham near the great trees of Mamre while he was sitting at the entrance to his tent. This is exactly where Abraham was at the beginning of chapter 14. In the heat of the day, and Abraham looked up and he saw three men standing nearby. So there's this tension in the story. God has appeared to Abram as three men. And as we go through the narrative of chapters 18 and 19, it's really confusing that it's like, is, it, is one of the men representing God or all of them? 
and, uh, and I invite you into this challenge to ponder on this text. But there's three guys standing there. And Abraham, when he saw them, he hurried from the tent, entrance of his tent to meet them, bowed down to the ground, and he welcomes them to enjoy his hospitality. And so with language, again, reminiscent of the Levitical sacrifices, Abraham puts a meal on for God in this little Eden space on top of the mountain. It's so cool. And as they're eating, they say, hey, where's your wife, Sarah? Say, oh, she's there in the tent. And one of them says, I will surely return to you about this time next year. And Sarah, your wife, will have a son. And we're like, yeah, finally. We've been waiting for a child since chapter 11. It's been 24 years of Abraham's life. And no kid that God is willing to work through yet has come. And finally, we're given the timeline. A year. A year from now, it'll happen. We'll have to wait till chapter 21 before he actually arrives. Or maybe chapter 20. But it's going to be a year. Now, Sarah's listening at the entrance to the tent, like you do. Uh, and Abraham and Sarah were already very old. And Sarah was past the age of childbearing. And so Sarah laughed to herself. And she's like, really, after I'm worn out and my Lord is old, will I have this pleasure? And the Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh? God knows what's going on in Sarah's heart. Will she, why does she say, will I really have a child now that I'm old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? That's a great question. Is anything too hard for the Lord? I will return to you at the appointed time next year. Sarah will have a son. And Sarah's like, oh, I, I didn't laugh. He's like, no, no, you did. So after this, this real high point, the blessing to Abraham is reiterated. He's eating with God in this mini Eden spot. The men get up to leave, and God says, Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Abraham will surely become a great and powerful nation. All the nations on the earth will be blessed through him. Again, the promise is reiterated. All the nations of the world will be blessed through him. For I have chosen him. I chose him so that he will, be, he will direct his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just so that the Lord will bring about for Abraham what he has promised him. And then the Lord said, The outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great, and their sin so grievous, that I will go down and I will see if what they've done is as bad as the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. So just like in the Tower of Babel, when people were building a city, God came down to investigate so now God has heard about the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah. But before he destroys it, he's going to double check. And he's going to come down. He's going to take a look for himself. Well, there's a problem with uh, that whole plan to destroy Sodom. Is Abraham's nephew, Lot, lives there. And the men turned away and they went towards Sodom. But Abraham remained standing before the Lord. And Abraham approached him and said, Will you sweep away the righteous? with the wicked? What if, what if there's 50 righteous people in that city? Will you really sweep it away and not spare the place for the sake of the 50 righteous people in it? Far be it from you. I love it. Abraham talking to God. Don't you dare. Far be it from you to do such a thing, to kill the righteous with the wicked, treating the righteous and the wicked alike, like they're the same, like there's, there's no real justice in the world. Far be it from you. Will not the judge of all the earth do right? And Abraham this, Abraham, this blessed, righteous man, 
that God has chosen to bless all the nations is interceding for wicked Sodom. He says, you need to spare the city. If there's 50 righteous there, won't you do it? Or, or does being righteous not matter to you, God? And in this beautiful turn of phrase, God says, okay, if there's 50 righteous, I won't do it. I'm not sure what you guys expect from the story, but normally in certain cultures, when someone makes the opening bid, you expect the next guy to come in higher. Like, what are those 50? And you, you think maybe God would say, well, how about 100? And we'll settle at 75, and we'll agree to spare the city. But instead, God just says, okay. And then Abraham says, um, well, how about 45? What if there's five less? And God says, okay. What about 40? <laughs> okay. 30? Okay. 20? Okay. And then he says, may, may the Lord not be angry. Let me speak just once more. What if, there, what if only 10 can be found? And he answered, well, for the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. And God leaves Abraham standing there on the top of the hill. And we're just left to wonder, like, Abraham, why did you stop? God didn't put the cap on it. Like, what if you had gone lower? Well, the, the narration shifts scenes, and now we, we're traveling with the two men going towards Sodom. And uh, there's nep- Abraham's nephew, Lot. In a very a parallel circumstance, Lot, who's sitting at the entrance to the gate of the city, sees the men coming and offers them hospitality, only he doesn't recognize that this is the Lord who's appearing to him. And the men come into Lot's home, and that night uh, we find out that the, the people of Sodom are just as wicked as, uh, as God has heard about. And Lot's, uh, they, they, are, <laughs> they come to Lot's house, and they demand, bring out those men, we want to uh, have our way with them. And Lot's like, don't do it. Here's my counterproposal. How about you take my virgin daughters and do what you want with them? And we're like, Lot, we're not so impressed by your problem-solving abilities right now. Um, but the men, they, they save Lot from the crowd. They strike the men with blindness, and they tell Lot, look, you guys got to leave the town. God is going to destroy this place. So if you have anyone else here, get them out of Dodge. And Lot goes to his, his uh, the, the men who are engaged to his daughters to be married, and he warns them, and they think he's only joking. And the lot, the people, are, the angels, the messengers, they're like, you got to leave. And Lot is hesitant to go. And so the angels grab their hands and, and physically walk them out of town because God is merciful. They weren't going to make it on their own. And they say, you guys need to run for the hills because uh, this whole plane is going to be destroyed. And don't, look, don't turn back. Uh, don't tarry long. And Lot's like, I'm going to die if I go up into the hills. What about that little town over there? See, see that town? Can I run there instead? And so by way of implication, um, a town is saved by the request of one righteous man. And the angels say, all right, get there. I can't do anything until you arrive. So Lot and his family run to the town, and God's destruction comes on Sodom and Gomorrah, echoing Noah's flood echoing the Tower of Babel here, destruction coming on the wicked and the righteous being saved out of it. So when God destroyed the cities of the plain, he remembered Abraham and he brought Lot out of the catastrophe that overthrew the cities where Lot had lived. And so it's actually not even Lot's righteousness that saved him. Once again, it is God through Abraham rescuing Lot from the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. So there's 
that balance there. And then just as in the story of Noah, which we were in last, uh, we heard about last week, Noah, the righteous man who's saved from the destruction, gets off the boat and then shows that he and his family are infected by the same sins that the world had before the calamity. And you have that sordid story of Noah and his tent. So Lot goes up into the mountains. His wife has died at this point, and he's just got his two daughters. And the girls are looking around saying, there's no person, no man on the face of the earth to marry us. What are we going to do? And instead of trusting the God who saved them, they took matters into their own hands, got their dad totally drunk, and both got impregnated by their father. It's gross. And so one of the children that's born is named Moab, literally from, from my father. And the other kid is named Ammon, Ben Amni, like son of my people. You're like, oh, that's not a great start to people who will historically be enemies of God's people Israel. And Lot's uh, place in, in the narrative is over, thankfully. Thankfully, and we're going to stop there this morning. We're on a journey of faith, Abraham learning to trust God. And at his best, Abraham listens and obeys God and he trusts him, is counted righteous and actually intercedes and people are saved because of Abraham's intercession. And, and at Abraham's worst, he mistreats others. He tries to accomplish God's blessings on his own and things just do not go very well. So what can we learn? Again, just that pattern there. Three lessons that I want to just explore with you guys this morning. The first is God has chosen to bless the world through Abraham's family. Second is that God will bring about his promises. We cannot rush it. We can't accomplish blessings on our own. We cannot keep God from doing what he promised. And the last thing is that God will save the righteous and judge the wicked. We've learned that lesson before. However, on behalf of the righteous, God will spare the wicked. The wicked can be spared. So what, what could this mean for us? First of all, God's chosen to bless the world through Abraham's family. It wasn't because Abraham was awesome. It's because God chose him. And then from Abraham, God chose Abraham's people, the Israelites. And from the people of Israel, God chose to work through one line in particular, the tribe of Judah. From whence a king will come who will rule over all the nations and bless them. We find out later that king is from the line of David and along the way, God has just increasingly made his choice. And ultimately, the story, to fast forward, ends in a guy named Jesus. You may have heard of him. Jesus has come to bring about God's blessings to the entire world. And Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. There is only one way to get to God, and that is through the line of Abraham culminating in Jesus. And so the only way to be blessed is to submit to it. I think that's one of the, the powerful stories of this really broken situation with Hagar. Go back and submit to Sarai. Why? Because it's only through Abram and Sarai, Abraham and Sarah, that a blessing will come. And Ishmael will be blessed because of Abraham, even though it's less than perfect. So for us, that means, again, we're going to jump a thousand pages in our Bible. <laughs> Jesus is the one through whom God's blessings come. We have to trust in Jesus. It's not that God is stingy or mean. It's that God has chosen that his blessings will come through the person that he chose, and he picked Jesus. And if we want to be right with God, we have to come through Jesus. So I invite you, if you've not put your salvation, if you've not put your trust in Jesus for salvation, trust in him. Be baptized. Identify with his people. And speaking of his people, 
God has chosen to bless the world now through Jesus' people, the church. And we are broken and we hurt others. Welcome to Family of Grace. If you have not been hurt by someone in this building, I'm sorry. It's going to come. <laughs> just let's own it. If I haven't hurt you yet, just wait. I will. And by God's grace, I will repent and say I'm sorry, and we will reconcile, and we will continue to live life together. But the church is a bunch of broken, sinful, messed up people, but they happen to be the ones through whom God has chosen to bless the world. Be part of the church. Our, our brokenness does not preclude God wanting to use us. And so really, this is for the people who are on the live stream, <laughs> who will watch this at some point. Now or in the future. If you're not part of a church, you need to be. Whether that's here or anywhere else, I don't care if you're part of Family of Grace, but I care a whole lot that there are people that know you, that are known by you, that are walking in the way of Jesus along with you. You have to be part of the church. And I know we're broken. It doesn't matter. God has chosen to bless the world through Jesus' people. All right, second thing. God will bring about his promises. We can't rush it. We cannot accomplish blessings on our own. And we cannot keep God from doing what he promised. Abram can give away his wife. And God's like, ah, we're going to, we're going to fix that situation. He's going to do it again next week. <sighs> we'll get there next week. He gives away the land, and, and through a more subtle version, God, again, saves Abram from screwing up God's plan. God will keep his promises. He really will. He's, he's that good. So we are called to trust him and to be counted righteous, to actually believe God is telling us the truth. And whether that's that we will be blessed by living along the grain of how he created the world, by choosing to obey him, by believing in Jesus, that's what we need to be counted righteous. And we're called to be patient. I mean, kudos to Abraham. He waited 10 years before he tried to, like, you know, um, leverage his way into bringing God's blessings about. Um, some of us, we make it like 10 minutes or, or 10 days, and that feels like a mini eternity. So uh, I'm not any better than this guy. But we have to be patient. And the times will come in our life that we will be sorely tempted to, to give up or to think that God will never do what he said. Now, Abram, he had a promise. He actually had a promise from God that these things were going to happen. Uh, many of us don't. As a young man, waiting uh, for the appropriate expressions of my physical desire was really, really difficult. And the challenge was to not wait for God's timing and God's way. And everything that I did to try to like make that happen quicker um, only led to pain and suffering for myself and others. Um, whether that's, that's for finding satisfaction and joy now or, or in the future, it, it's hard to wait. We wonder, God, when, when is healing coming? Is healing coming? I know ultimately in the resurrection, but, but can it come sooner than that? Can we make it happen? When will, when will our financial security like you say that you're going to provide for our needs. You say not to worry. You say that you've, you're going to, you know, clothe us because you clothe the flowers of the field and you're going to feed us because you feed those dumb birds that don't stock up for the wintertime. Like, when? When will your provision come? And the opportunities arise to short circuit and to steal from others or to, to, you know, cut corners in ways that ought not to be done because it's just hard to wait. And the temptations will come, and yet Abraham's story says, wait, God will take care of you. He will keep his promises, and, and then let us repent of all the mistakes and the ways that we hurt people, because uh, we, 
We are broken, messy individuals. The last thing is God will save the righteous and he will judge the wicked. However, on behalf of the righteous, God will spare the wicked. And he does. This little tiny town that's named Zoar, like little, is spared because of Lot. Lot and his family are spared because of Abraham. What might God do out of one righteous person? Of course, fast forward a thousand pages, we get to Jesus. Turns out God will forgive the entire world. All the sins of the world because of one righteous man named Jesus. And all the world has to do is to accept the free gift of God that comes through Jesus Christ. Of course, people don't want to. But we have, those who are here, I'm trusting each of you guys have put your faith in Jesus. So this morning I invite us to thank God for Jesus. Through whom all of our wickedness and all of our sin can be forgiven. And to imagine what God might yet do in the world through his people who are righteous because we trust in him. Like, would God perhaps spare a city that is known for um, the sex trafficking that takes place in it, that has been full of violence and injustice for a long time, full of people who want nothing to do with God? Like, could God spare a city such as that? on behalf of the righteous people? Could God spare a war-mongering nation that breaks its covenants and kills millions of people um, across the world as it protects its own interests for the sake of righteous who live among it? Could God do something like that? Maybe. So what would it look like for us to pray on behalf of others? God, would you spare my family member from the destructive consequences that their choices are leading to? And would you save them? God, would you spare my neighbor or my coworker? God, would you spare me? Um, I would just invite you guys to think, like, is there someone in your life that you can bless just simply through your prayers? Because it turns out God loves to answer this prayer. He, he never shows any resistance to Abraham's intercessions. He really is that good. So here's my hope for us at Family of Grace is that we would be counted righteous as we trust in God's promise and we submit to his ways, as hard as those might be, for the good of the world, that others might be blessed through us. See, we learn from Abraham's journey of faith about how to wait on the blessings of God and how not to wait. And if there's a question you have, because there's a lot I didn't cover, like let's talk, we're going to share a meal afterwards, but let's learn how to wait on the promises of God. Would you pray with me? Gracious Heavenly Father, you are good, you are holy, you are just, and you are true. God, we thank you that you are faithful to your promises, and Lord, would you hurry up and bring them? We long to see justice accomplished on this land. We long to see the world we made new. We want to see the dead raised. We want to see the redemption of our bodies. God, we long for the day when we are no longer torn from within by, the thing, by conflicting desires within ourselves. Um, Father, we, we want you to send Jesus, and we want you to bring about all that you have promised through him. And yet, God, you are patient and you, you take a long time. And so, God, if your blessings will not come, would you help us to wait faithfully? Would you help us to share the good news with Jesus so that others might be saved? Would you help us to trust you and to not lose heart and to endure and to encourage one another day by day as we await for the coming of your Son from heaven? It's been a long time, God, and yet we trust you. You have shown yourself faithful in the past. You've shown yourself faithful even in our lives. So, Lord, let us wait for you to bring your blessings. Um, would you help us to do that even today? In Christ's name we pray, amen.